0: He's your greatest ally, but also your mortal enemy. He'll lift you to your highest of highs and then crush you down to your lowest of lows. He'll play tricks on you, whisper into your ear and play to your worst emotions and greatest temptations, be it vanity, greed, jealousy, or anger. And ultimately, he might lead you to ruin. But that same person also holds the keys to your success. The keys to unlocking your full potential. And to find this person, well, you just have to look in the mirror. This week on Adventures in Finance, the psychology of trading.
1: Also coming up in this week's episode, we have our regular long short segment where Aaron and I discuss the good and of course, the not so good stories of the week.
0: Grant, I am long Taobao. Uh, And so for the people, for the listeners who don't know, uh, Taobao is the Chinese equivalent of eBay.
1: There's another company this week which has also gone out of business in the sharing space in China. And that is a company called Sharing e-Umbrella.
0: In a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made, and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom that they derive from that experience.
1: And oh boy, we got a good one for you this week. Uh, My friend Rick Rule, who's one of the most plain-spoken forthright guys you could admit, he's got tons of experience, uh, and he never shies away from talking about the good and the bad stuff, so you're really going to like this. He talks about something he got wrong by being early on uh, a massive regime shift during commodity super cycles. I am Grant Williams.
0: And I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is July 13th, 2017, and welcome to episode 24 of Adventures in Finance. 24. 20. Two dozen. It's got a nice sound to it, huh? It does. It's, it's, 24. it's got a ring to it. Yeah, and between us is James, our producer. James, how are you? I'm doing all right. You look a little subdued today. What's going on? Well, summer is definitely here,
2: and this hot weather, man, it just kind of... Makes you want to put your feet up and take a siesta. You're you're local, yeah, exactly. So when I think of summer, I think about taking it easy.
1: You've also usually got your feet up and taking a siesta whenever I come in. So (laughs) how exactly do you notice the change
2: in seasons? Hey, when I've got the headphones on and my eyes are closed. Trust me, I'm listening to audio. I'm, I'm thinking about
0: this. You know, Grant, a couple, a couple months back, I remember James changing tables because I came back, I came, walked into the office in, in the morning. I was like, wait, James, did your table just get bigger? And I think he, he needs the extra desk space so he can put his feet up during the day. I'm pretty sure that's what happens. I think he caught me there, mate. All right, well, Grant, let's move on from James's feet and move on to our first segment called Long Short.
1: Yes, and I'm going to jump in here because I am determined to go first. I think you went first last week anyway, so it's probably my turn. But um, Age before beauty. Yeah, okay, whatever. This week, my, my Twitter feed lit up, and you were one of the people that, that tipped me off to this story, so I, I, I begrudgingly have to give you I some credit I think I was a first. Uh, I'm not going to let you have that much credit, but I'll give you some. But uh, after my story about Wukong Bikes, who um, went out of business in Chongqing after that one. six months of operations. having yeah, I gave uh, you that one too. I don't think you gave me that one. After giving up all their bicycles, uh, this is like the Boris bikes. Uh, there's another company this week which has also gone out of business in the sharing space in China, and that is a company called Sharing E Umbrella. Now, James, I'm I'm going to give you the chance to guess what <laughs> they do because I reckon even you've got half a chance of getting this one right. What do you think E Sharing Umbrella does?
0: What do you think Sharing E Umbrella does? I'm I'm guessing that people share their umbrellas. I think that sounds like a bad experience at a music festival.
1: Yeah, right. Well, look, I mean, so Wukong lost, you know, a handful of bikes, bright yellow bikes that went missing. Uh, sharing e-umbrella has managed to lose almost all of its three hundred thousand umbrellas in a few weeks. Now, the idea here was you pay a nineteen yuan deposit, um, and you can take away uh, the umbrella and return it once you're done with it. Now, apparently, the umbrellas cost sixty yuan to buy. So the CEO, uh, Mr. Zhao, uh, I guess didn't do his sums right. Now, somebody was speculating on Twitter that perhaps these umbrellas only cost nine yuan to buy, and he actually sold 300,000 for 100% markup, which would be pretty smart business. Good trade. But, uh, but given the fact that in China, most of the rain comes in the summer, and as it says in the article here... For a business that depends on rain, finding a steady profit might prove challenging. China receives the most rain in the summertime, leaving little interest in the business during drier months. What's worse, in regions with frequent rain, people are more likely to just buy their own umbrellas. Now, call me old-fashioned, but there was something very, very flawed in this business. I don't know how much money they raised, um, but the CEO, Mr. Zhao, has not given up hope. He is going for the full shampoo rinse repeat, and he is going to release another 30 million umbrellas. By the end of the Gosh, year, I, I thought you were about to say he was going to do a shampoo sharing. No, no, if you can't, yeah, right. If you can't, if you can't succeed with 300,000, you know what? Why not try with 30 million? But this gave me a genius idea. Here Aaron, what do you think about this? Producer sharing. We put James out in the street. I
2: don't like where this is going.
1: We put James out in the street. <laughs> we take a deposit, like
0: two Canadian dollars. And, you know, if they don't bring it back, they don't bring him back. You know, Grant, I think you may be onto something there. I mean, he's got a lot of skills, uh, but I think we need him the most on the island here to do this podcast. He's
1: he's also very secretive with how he hides those skills, I've found in my experience. He's a secretive, (laughs) secretive man. Anyway, look, what's your short for
0: the week? Well, Grant, I'm tempted to actually go into my long because it has to do with China, but I'm going to stay consistent and go with my short. And this week, I am short boredom. Now, Analysts are estimating that the five largest Wall Street banks, um, their combined trading revenue will drop 11% uh, from the year earlier to around $18.4 billion. But that's not the kicker, because behind the scenes, the traders are actually sort of agitated, or maybe they're annoyed by the lack of market-moving news, uh, to the point where some of these traders and some of these portfolio managers are actually coming out and admitting to some of the things that they're doing while bored. Now here are some highlights for you. So one bond trader says that he'll be slipping out to you know watch his kids play sports. That's, that's understandable. Okay. Um, one office actually staged a golf retreat up in Massachusetts, Okay, right? And you'd expect that in summer months. But one trading supervisor admitted to swiping through a lot of profiles on Tinder okay. to get through the time. Um, but this one is my favorite. One portfolio manager said he left work for a few hours in late June to play his recently delivered Nintendo, the NES Classic Edition, just to be exact, a new miniature version of the iconic video game console originally released in 1985. So these traders and portfolio managers are—they're they're skipping work to play video games. Well, that's look, how bored the street is. That, that, well, I would suggest that maybe you make this, um, you make
1: this a pairs trade. You go short Wall Street trader boredom uh, and long your own on the basis that you spend all
0: day sitting next to James. Well, I thought you were going to say long Nintendo, but the last time that happened with—we uh, know how that worked yeah, out with
1: we, Pokemon yeah, Go, right? Exactly. Well, okay, uh, I really have nothing to say to that. I think it's, uh, there are better things to do if you're going to sneak out of work than play video games, but hey, who am I to say? My long is going to surprise you this week because I am long Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon? I told you. I told you you'd react. Huh. Yeah, I'm long Jamie Dimon, but not probably for the reasons you might think. I'm long Jamie Dimon because he's finally come out and said something Uh, that I agree with. Um, He was talking this week, and he was talking about uh, Central Bank balance sheet unwinds. And he said, and I quote, we've never had QE like this before. We've never had unwinding like this before. Obviously, that should say something to you about the risk that might mean, because we've never lived with it before. When that happens, and he's talking about the unwind of the Federal Reserve's $4.5 trillion balance sheet, when that happens of size or substance, it could be a little more disruptive than people think. We act like we know exactly how it's going to happen, and we don't. Now, there's a little slice of truthiness from Jamie Dimon, which I, you know, I have to say I'm impressed with, and uh, I think he's absolutely right. So my surprise long this week is uh, the CEO of a major investment bank.
0: Yeah, but Grant, I'm am j- just waiting now for the bank research that's going to come out saying how higher rates and higher rates from balance sheet normalization are actually going to lead to better, pro- you know, higher profits. Well, yeah, the but the
1: problem is it's not it's not the rates, is it? It's not the it's not the rates. It's the un- it's the uh, disruption that this is very likely to cause. I mean, we'll see. Look, we don't know. Maybe something, we stick the perfect landing. But uh, you remember Goldilocks from a few years ago and a few years before that and a few years before that? Yeah. She never showed up yet.
0: Well, showing up next is my long for the weekend. This week, Grant, I am long Taobao. Okay. Uh, And so for the people, for the listeners who don't know, uh, Taobao is the Chinese equivalent of eBay. And in addition to the sneakers and diapers and the pet foods that you you can buy on Taobao, it's also used by millions of Chinese to now snap-up non-performing loans. Ah, okay. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of crazy, right? Because there's about a billion yuan of this stuff floating uh-huh. uh, around on Taobao uh, on, on a regular basis. And if you look at the NPL situation in China, it's more than doubled in uh, the past two years. So I think around 1. 1.5 trillion yuan um, by the end of the first quarter of last year. And, you know, it's funny because I read... This, this particular line in in the article kind of threw me for a loop. It says, as Beijing pushes lenders to find market-oriented ways of dealing with soured loans, interest in distressed debt has climbed. I was like, OK, distressed debt has climbed. But <laughs> effectively, what's happening here is that the government wants a market solution to a government problem that was created in the first right, place. Right, exactly
1: right. And, and what better market solution than retail investors coming right, along to take right, on the right Exactly. Uh, so, which
0: is the concerning part, right? Because, yeah, of course. Um, you know one bank analyst who covers china said you know what this is this is great because you know now all the information is out there for everyone to see so there's greater transparency but i i think there's still a, a probably a, a significant information asymmetry here that exists right because well uh,
1: you know if you think about it it's actually genius because if you diffuse the risk like that amongst the populace in small chunks look, they who, have who, savings? the only people that never get bailed out right the public right so if you can put instead of big chunks of debt and non-performing loans on bank balance sheets. If you can put tiny amounts of debt on the private balance sheet and individuals, you don't have to bail anybody out. It's it's actually genius. Yeah. We should keep this quiet. I hope no one in the West gets to hear about this. <laughs> Good point. Actually, while we're on the subject of long shorts, I need to just acknowledge the amount of emails I've had from people after my baby driver along the other week. It seems that like a lot of people have been out to see it, including our intrepid producer, and, uh, and everybody seems to have thought similarly to me. So uh, again, in case you missed that recommendation, go see Baby Driver. It's awesome.
0: We've also had a lot of requests for your report uh, on John Law, Grant. Yeah,
1: well, it's, it's still sitting there. If anybody wants it, just email in and we will send it to you right away.
0: Well, Grant, next up is this week's documentary feature. And listeners, get comfy in your recliner and take a deep breath because this week we'll be talking about trading psychology. So up to this point, Grant, most of our documentary features have been, let's say, outward looking. You know, we've been looking at major themes and major trends around the world. One Belt, One Road, German real estate, uh, cryptocurrency, cybersecurity. Um, But this week, we're actually going to get a little bit more introspective and devote some time to exploring the inner game of trading.
1: Yeah, it's funny. The more you look out, the more you realize that the geopolitics, okay, it, it, it involves everybody. It doesn't necessarily affect everybody who trades. Some people don't care about equities, commodities, fixed income, whatever it may be. But, you know, the one area that affects everybody who either trades in markets, invests, is psychology. I mean, this is the, this is the place that people could and should perhaps be
0: doing the most work on improving their mental, uh, their mental edge. Yeah, Grant, it's a really important topic because there's, well, for one, there's tons of academic research that's gone into this topic. But also, you know, many traders who look to, you know, many traders will look to performance psychology to manage their emotions and maybe gain ever so slight of an edge in their trading,
1: yeah. To to me, it's about. I think the edge is secondary. It's about gaining control and understanding of your emotions, and 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 really getting a sense of when you're doing things purely on emotion, and, and to try and strip that out of it. And I, I think you gain an edge from doing that. But I, you know, the the edge is uh, is the end rather than the means to me. You know, Aaron, you and I can sit here as amateur psychologists and talk about this all day long. But you know, the smart thing for us to do, for everybody's benefit, would be to get in an expert. And our first guest, Dr. Brett Steenbarger, has worked with some of the biggest hedge funds in the world. He's one of the world's leading psychological specialists when it comes to trading. And we wanted to get into his head, and we started with a broad view on trading psychology, which is grounded in decades of research and experience alongside some of the biggest hedge funds and portfolio managers in the world.
3: So uh, my name is Brett Steenbarger, and I'm a psychologist who works on performance with traders and portfolio managers. I'm a clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, where I teach strategies in short-term behavior change known as brief therapy. I've written book chapters and a couple of books in the area of brief therapy, academic books, and I've also written for books on trading psychology. The most recent one is Trading Psychology 2.0, which I named because I felt that old models of trading psychology were not sufficiently accounting for the forces that current traders are experiencing.
0: And so Brett didn't always start with advising traders and portfolio managers. And what for him, what started off as a side curiosity ended up turning into his life's calling.
3: I started out with an interest in financial markets uh, early in my life and began trading in the late 1970s, and that was uh, at the time when I was in graduate school getting my degree in psychology. So trading was really a side activity for me, but something I was quite interested in. My career, however, was designed as a psychologist. I graduated in clinical psychology And then uh, from graduate school, went to a community clinic and then went to Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and then um, went for 19 years to Syracuse, where I taught at Upstate Medical University as an assistant professor in psychiatry and behavioral sciences. And I, I still retain that academic affiliation. Uh, and all during that time, I traded myself and read about trading, but it was always a side activity. Uh, it was only in 2002, 2003, that I ended up writing a book about psychology and trading called The Psychology of Trading. And to my surprise, it became a popular book, and uh, traders discovered it And one trading firm in Chicago. Uh, brought me into work with their traders and I started to apply my psychology work in what's called brief therapy or short-term approaches to behavior change to the issues that traders face and that went well. And so I went full-time to the firm in Chicago and uh, then later branched out to working with hedge funds and asset management firms and, and uh, proprietary trading firms. And that's how I, uh, Develop that interest. It really started out in parallel and uh, ended up converging.
1: It's funny. I, I I love this idea of a psychologist who's just trading right before he thinks about applying the two to, and thinking, "Hang on a second, how does one affect the other?" You know, this 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 desire to trade and get involved in the stock market. It's it's a passion for so many people. And wherever there's passion, there are always psychological problems, right? That's just the way it goes, because you're just acting on emotions. So I, just, I just love this idea that the trading kind of came first, mm-hmm. and he only really applied uh, the learning to it after he got into that world.
0: Yeah, that seems like a really interesting way to approach it. And, and so given um, Brett's experience, I actually want to start with, I guess, the development of younger traders, and to ask Brett if he's
3: seen what that development curve looks like. You know, certainly I've been part of the recruitment at uh, several hedge funds where we hire uh, junior uh, traders as well as more experienced ones. And I've had the the privilege of working with a number of people who have come on board as junior professionals and have advanced and now are uh, performing as senior professionals. Very often what will happen is the junior person will start as part of a team and then they will grow within that team, and then eventually they will get their own portfolio to trade. Uh, That happens commonly in the equities world with long-short equity teams, but we're seeing it happen increasingly in the macro world where teams are managing uh, different markets and strategies. And so what happens is the junior people, the relative novices, end up learning at the desk. They learn through mentoring. They learn by observing a master, uh, a senior trader, doing what they do, knowing what they know. They internalize that process. It becomes part of them. And then they are able, within that, to make their own observations and to individualize that process and truly make it their own. So in that sense, the The move from being a relative novice to being more of an expert is not so different from what we see in, let's say, medical education, where a medical student starts out observing senior physicians and resident physicians in training and then eventually grow and finally get their own patients to follow and learn further and eventually are practicing on their own.
0: You know, Grant, I wanted to ask that question about going from novice to professional, because obviously a lot of our, our listeners are, you know, retail traders. And so, you know, want to help them along that learning curve. But let's stop for a second to, to think about the state of the hedge fund world. I mean, this is no secret to any of us. I mean, there are just fewer and fewer seats, meaning there are fewer mentoring opportunities. Yet, um, there are, you know, in my own experience, there are tons of traders and portfolio managers on Twitter who are generous and willing to engage and, and share resources. But this, you know, this this issue where there is fewer and fewer mentors and fewer seats. I mean, what is the implication, you know, for I guess maybe a lack of younger traders and and what is how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, it's it's such a great point, Aaron. I was very fortunate to have been through that mentoring program, if you like. You know, it, it was at different firms under different people, but I learned so much from all of them. And and to the point that Brett makes here, the thing. That perhaps stuck with me most that I learned along the way was was watching them make mistakes. And not just seeing what the mistakes were, but watching how they dealt with them, both from uh, a, a PL risk management perspective, but perhaps more importantly from an emotional perspective, to see how people handle stress, to see how people handle emotions when things are going against them, um, was profoundly important for me. And so, you know, as, as good as Twitter is in as you say, it's somewhere you can go for advice and and Commentary and, and inputs to your own work to be able to watch seasoned professionals who understand how to deal with you know what what Roger Kipling called the twin imposters is so so important and it, and it is a crying shame that less and less people are getting the chance to do that.
0: Well, it's also a crying shame too is that when you consider the fact that the average age of a Wall Street trader is around thirty years old, that means that most traders aren't actually old enough to have traded through a crisis,
1: well, or even a cycle. I mean, Let's be yeah. basis. It, it doesn't even matter about the crisis. Uh, there, there are there are entire desks on Wall Street staffed to people who've only been in the market since post-2008 and have just seen markets go up. And And markets always turn at some point, whether it's tomorrow or not for three or four years, who knows? But when it does, it will be an entirely new paradigm for them to learn on the job, and that's a tough thing to do.
0: And to your point, you know, a crisis can have a significant impact on shaping a whole generation's psyche. Yeah,
3: I think that uh, of obviously- the people I've observed uh, working at various uh, funds, the the people who were most influenced by 2008 were investors. When I say investors, I mean institutional investors, those who uh, devote capital to funds, uh, who allocate their capital to different funds. Um, They became much more risk averse. And so it was not unusual pre-2008 when I first got involved in the business that a discretionary macro fund might allow drawdowns of 10 and even 20% in the pursuit of significant double-digit returns. That absolutely does not occur now. And so it's really pushed Portfolio managers into shorter-term strategies, shorter-term trading, so that their way of thinking may be macro, in other words, based on larger-picture macroeconomic trends and developments. But in fact, when you look at their trading, it's quite short-term. There's a mismatch between their trading horizon and what I would call their idea horizon. And I think that is a big part Of why funds have underperformed. And that is, as you point out, uh, one of the consequences of 2008.
0: So we have these divergent horizons. And meanwhile, Grant, we are now circling the event horizon of this kind of wonky market where the traditional rules no longer apply.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting, actually. I've, I've spoken with several um, big, well-known hedge fund managers, and a lot of them have been fortunate to be in the position where they can say to their investors, okay, look, unless you give me lock-up capital that you can't touch for three years, I'm just going to return my money to my investors. And these guys have got stellar track records. And, and they've said to me individually, uh, you know, unless I can manage money that way, Unless I can avoid the short-termism and the panics when people say the market's down 2%, get me out, I can't do my job. And we're seeing that in the performance. We're seeing that in uh, hedge fund returns. And I think we're seeing it in, in a psychological sense playing out in, in, in the emotional space. When you look at these guys
0: on, on TV talking about the markets, they're, they're frustrated and, and understandably so. But you know, investors just don't have the patience anymore for that kind of volatility, especially when indices can deliver higher risk-adjusted returns. But again, for how long? And uh, but barring the lack of opportunity within this environment, Brett had some interesting pointers about some of the best practices he's seen over the years from top hedge funds and portfolio managers he's worked with.
3: Uh, the first one uh, does pertain to the idea generation and the creativity that we've been discussing. And so they will devote meaningful portions of their day and week to accessing new information, looking at different data and observing patterns that make sense to them and use that information to help them generate fresh ideas. Some of the managers do that interpersonally. They develop very selective networks of colleagues, and they get together for phone chats, or they get together in person every so often, and each person brings their most unique ideas or observations, and they use that to brainstorm. That can be very, very helpful in generating new ideas, different ways of trading. So that fresh uh, uh, exposure to new ideas, new methods, is something that I see as a a best practice. Which is
0: why, you know, I bring it back to Twitter, but that's why something like Twitter becomes an invaluable tool for engaging with new ideas, because there's obviously a lot out there, there's a lot of noise, but if you you can find stuff that's interesting, find stuff that's divergent, I mean, something like Twitter can be really useful.
1: It can, as can the kind of gatherings that that Brett talks about. You know, I've been fortunate enough to to attend a few of those and to sit down with a bunch of guys kicking ideas around. It's such an interesting process to watch and and people are are, are keener now to do that than ever before because ideas are are hard to come by. And I think there's there's just that confirmation. You just need people doing similar things to you to
0: reaffirm the fact that you're not actually crazy. Right. And, you know, as you were saying that, uh, Grant, it reminded me actually of um, this thing that Jawad Mian does. He's an excellent contributor to Real Vision TV and as well to publications where he has a macro dinner that he sets up. Uh, and I think his latest uh, report on Real Vision publications was a, summative, um, a summary document or a sub- summary publication of some of the, the views and, and the ideas that, uh, I guess, the dinner participants brought with them to the table. Uh,
3: a second area is that... The managers who have been able to express ideas in a greater variety of ways about outperformed those who just have one plain vanilla way of expressing a view. The um, managers who are making money are very aware of the different ways of expressing a view and which ones are more additive to a portfolio, which ones are more correlated with what they already have, which ones have more limited downside, um, which ones could work for more reasons. And so they will find better risk-reward expressions, even though there's trading essentially the same idea as other people. Uh, but a good amount of their time is devoted to that trade structuring.
0: Now Grant, when I heard this, this sounds like you know, it might be the most difficult thing to do because it you can, can get pretty technical, right? Like, just consider the things that go into trade structuring, and I'm probably going to miss some 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 things here. You can help fill in the gaps, like you know, sizing, uh, correlation to the rest of your portfolio, volatility, um, assessing the risk reward, like you know, thinking if, is this the most efficient way of expressing this view, um, liquidity. I mean, there's tons of things you need to think about, and, and maybe this is where the experience of a mentor can provide tremendous value. It is. One
1: of the the most interesting moments in the last three years of Real Vision was when Kyle Bass and John Burbank sat down for a conversation. And, you know, Kyle was interviewing John Forrest. And they're old friends. They've known each other for a long, long time. And they sat down. And the very first question Kyle asked was, how do you size your positions? And that, you know, I think if you get that right, you can afford to be wrong. Um, And it's really only from from getting that mentoring experience. And even someone like Kyle Bass is still looking to guys he sees as peers and experienced professionals to see, is there a better way that I can do this? So I don't think you ever stop learning if you surround yourself with the right people. And you shouldn't. You know, If you, if you, if you have access to to smart people, you should use that as much as you can and try and and try and drag as much knowledge out of them as possible.
3: And a third element is that the successful managers uh, really work on themselves in systematic ways. And, and that's why I referred to in the earlier interview as self-management. We, we know from research that maximizing our positive emotional experience leads to better outcomes in terms of productivity. It also leads to better outcomes in terms of creativity. And so the managers who are encountering better success are really doing specific things each day and each week to to maximize their happiness, their fulfillment, their energy level, their connections to other people. They're maximizing their positive experience so that they are most energized um, during their trading days.
1: Yeah, Aaron, I've always believed that the first thing you have to try and understand is yourself, which is why I was so interested in listening to Brett. You know, if if you don't understand markets None of us understand markets. There are times when we think we do, but we really don't. They're just they're just constantly evolving. Um, but if you understand yourself, it just makes the way you deal with the vagaries of markets when they go against you that much easier to handle. Uh, I think if you if you un- think you understand markets but you don't understand yourself, you're on a hiding to nothing. And if you understand yourself and you don't understand markets, you're in a pretty good position. I think it's really important to get it that way around.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this idea of I guess systematic self management may sound daunting. Um, and I think it's be- because it is, you know, there's no expertise or mastery that ever came easy, maybe, maybe just something as simple as keeping a journal, or maybe in tracking a spreadsheet. Um, and in trading, understanding, managing yourself is just as if, I mean, to your point, if not more important than the technical knowledge required to trade markets. And Brett had some solid advice for aspiring traders who are in the early innings of their journey in becoming better traders.
3: So let's see, let's say I'm watching television, and I see People playing football and being successful and making a ton of money, or they're playing golf and they're being successful in tournaments and they're making a ton of money. And I say to myself, Huh, okay, I'm going to go do that. Well, it doesn't exactly work that way. For a a true novice, for someone just getting into financial markets, really there has to be a period of time of just observing markets, how they work different ways in which people are trading them, what makes money, what doesn't make money. Uh, You learn some pattern recognition from that. You learn something about factors that drive markets. And it's only after that learning curve that you would start trading on paper. You would start simulation trading. So there is a real learning curve before it makes sense to take significant risk with your capital. And I would encourage novice traders to think about that soberly and decide whether that's a learning curve they truly want to undertake.
1: Now, you know, that's probably not what most people want to hear. You know, people want to jump in yeah. and get into markets and make money, but you know it's such sound advice uh, from someone with, with a tremendous amount of experience. But you know what? If you don't believe Brett uh, and you want to hear it confirmed, then let's hear from someone who
4: has successfully traded markets for over 40 years. There's an old adage that if you really want to get to know yourself as a person, become a trader, because you will get to know yourself. You'll get to know the good, the bad and the ugly. They all come together.
0: That's Peter Brandt, CEO and founder of Factor Trading, a proprietary trading and research firm that has a 40 plus year track record of successfully trading markets. Now, we recently produced a five-part classical charting masterclass series with Peter, and what you're about to hear are snippets from episode four of that series, where he dives into the first-person view of trading psychology from the perspective of a risk-taker.
4: It's my daily challenge to recognize the ways in which my emotions and character faults tend to sabotage everything I'm doing, and that requires me to be absolutely self-honest and transparent. Which is, quite frankly, not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to recognize and fully admit to our own character faults and ways that we we tend to uh, negatively impact our trading, uh, but it's an important thing to do. And we, I know that I need to recognize those areas that uh, tend to throw me off my game. And uh, in many ways, uh, we find out uh, who our own worst enemy is, and I know that I have certainly met mine. Yeah,
1: it just confirms everything Brett said uh, and everything I've seen up up close in in my 30 years in markets. It's so true we are all our own worst enemies. But, you know, Peter went on to dispel some of the more common myths that retail investors may have about trading.
4: You know, when I reflect back on... My career as a trader, what I recognized is that early in my trading career, I thought trader identification was where the edge is, Uh, that charting would provide me with the edge. And as I can reflect back on a very long period of time, over 40 years of market speculation now, I realize that uh, trade identification, uh, again, is one of the least most important, least uh important contributors to edge it really consists of 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 four areas so one area is risk management i i as i view it risk management is the biggest contributor that i have to my trading edge managing emotions is is a close second uh to be the most important contributor to my overall edge the process by which i use to trade uh is is third and finally followed up by trade identification or trade signaling. You know, we've all heard that uh, emotions of fear or greed are, are the worst enemies of a trader. And I wish that was the end of it. Fear and greed are just the start of the emotions that can, uh, that can undercut a trader in their, uh, in their attempt to be successful. I think the bottom line of, of trading is that... Uh, Overcoming self is the key to success. So
0: now we hear this coming from Peter. This should not be you know, mis- misinterpreted as some sort of self-awareness meditation framework. I mean, there are practical considerations, and it really is, you know, when you consider overcoming self, that is a starting point for self-management, as Brett talked about earlier. And it's something that becomes the basis of your regular evaluation of yourself. And Peter knows this because he's been doing this for 40 years.
1: Yeah, it's uh, when you hear a, you know, a clinical psychologists professionally talk about this and then you hear a guy that sat down like peter has for 40 years in the trenches and learned it through practical experience you know it should hit home to a lot of people that there there is a great deal to this and it bears an awful lot of consideration by anybody thinking about getting into
0: markets well you know peter mentioned fear and greed let's get into some of those other character traits that might sabotage your trading
4: uh one is compulsiveness uh, another one would be being a worrier, people who are a worrier is that's not a good trait for for being a trader. You're always worried about what your trade's going to do. I know I tend to be a perfectionist, and you know there's the old saying that uh, sometimes perfection is, is the enemy of good. And I, I can see that in my own trading, is uh, you tend to always want to have things be perfect, and when you're a trader, things can't always be perfect. Uh, stubbornness. People who are stubborn and that's a very dangerous uh, trait to have in the business of trading because that is a trait that can lead a trader into hanging on losses for way longer than they should be hanging, uh, hung on to. Uh, I think another trait which uh, can tend to work against a trader is being overconfident. We've I've met traders who absolutely are overconfident in the trades that they have on, and it's to their own doom. I think there's a flip side to that, and that's being underconfident. I mean, as traders, we need to have some level of confidence that what we're going to do is going to work. We can't be completely timid. Uh, I I think another trait that can affect uh, trading is the degree to which a person is is too overly aggressive. I've seen traders that are like bulldogs, they never know when to leave the ring, uh, and they become completely aggressive and that aggressive nature of theirs can be reflected then in in the trading that they do another trait that I've seen in traders is they, they they're they're overly possessive everything is there every idea is theirs so they're not willing to give uh, a credit for good ideas perhaps to some of the traders that are on their staff I've seen that with people who have run proprietary trading firms Uh, Another character trait which works against trading success is is being unfocused. Uh, You know, uh, people who are just kind of scatterbrained, it's their very nature that they just don't stay on task on things. It's not a good trait for a trader to have. I think yet another trait which tends to work against a trader is when they're closed-minded, they are not open to new thinking about a problem. They have a fixed idea in their mind as to how to resolve an issue, and they're not really willing to think about things outside of that. And I think one of the big ones is greed, as we've all met people who are greedy. They just want every last penny on the table, and, and uh, as a trader, you have to give up some of that creed, I think, uh, for, to, uh, to achieve success. So when we think about character traits that work against us, you know the list goes on. Add your own. See, Grant, you and I are just kind of sitting here silently. I don't know if you're
0: thinking what I'm thinking, but I'm thinking, like, wow, like all these character flaws, and just like you know, applying it to myself and thinking about where that manifests and bleeds into my own trading, or even thinking about markets. It's um, well, when-
1: I'm I'm listening to them, and I'm recognizing <laughs> I've been guilty of every single one of them, <laughs> right? except except I have to say. Uh, the the one about uh, taking all the credit because I blame all my faults on everybody else, so I'm uh, happy to give that credit
0: out where it's due. I thought you were going to say underconfidence. No, 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 God forbid. Yeah, but granted, it's all it's not all that bad. There are some positives too.
4: Some of the character traits that I think contribute to success, I've seen I've seen it in so many traders over the years. One of them is patience. They have the ability to wait things out. They have ability to wait for their pitch, so to speak. They don't feel the urge to always be trading. They, they can sit back and wait for for a particular setup to take place without feeling the urge to be involved. Uh, the, I've seen people who are diligent. They are, they are extremely on task. They they are diligent to 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 a fault. Uh, they have great attention to detail and 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 they pay attention to the little things. And sometimes it's the small things that really have the big payout. Uh, they're industrious uh, good traders i've met are extremely industrious they know to work hard they know what it's like to put in the extra hours they know what it's like to to really uh, attack a task and to not quit until they've achieved what they're trying to do of course a trait that comes to mind uh, among most traders i've met who are accomplished is they're very analytical uh, they think through problems they don't uh, they don't come up with the first thing that comes into their mind. They're deep thinkers. They they go deeper into a problem of trying to figure out things. Uh, one thing that you might not think about is creativity, somebody who can look at a market and come up with an idea in the market where you say, that's just absolutely crazy. But they've thought through creatively. They've creatively come up with what outcomes might be that you would not normally have expected for a particular marketplace. They they think outside the box, so to speak. And another trait I've seen in good traders is they're curious. They want to know how something works. They. They they want to know how the market works. They want to know how technical analysis works. They want to know uh what central banks do. They're they're very curious and they want to learn what takes place. And uh these are just uh uh I think some of the things that uh to tribute to success of traders. And so it's just not all good character traits bad character traits, but it's good character traits as well that uh, a trader needs to manage their bad character traits. They need to learn how to accentuate their good character traits to accomplish the trading outcomes they want.
1: I think that's 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 the perfect summation of this. You know, everyone listening to this is going to recognize parts of themselves in the good and the bad. Uh, and it's important. It's important to to understand the good, and acknowledge it. But it's it's even more important to work on the bad. You know, we, we, it it comes down to being honest. Look in the mirror and say, you know what? I am impatient. I am you know, I do jump in. Whatever these things are that you've, you've heard both Peter and Brett talk about, you recognize in yourself, uh, it happens to everybody. But it's just, you've got to sit down and say, okay,
0: I, I need to work on that. And then and then find a way to do that because it will make you a better trader. And, and Grant, the reason why I thought this, this theme or this story was so important for us to bring to our listeners is because, you know, if we loop this back to what Peter said earlier about his edge and how his edge is actually comprised of four, five different components with Behavior and managing his own emotions being the second biggest slice of, of that of that of that total pie I mean it, it makes sense because this whole effort of going through your negative character traits and then your positive character traits how to amplify them I mean that takes tons of effort and that takes a, a level of self-transparency and honesty that is just frankly Uncomfortable for a lot of people. So, you know now that we've looked at both sides of the character ledger uh, Why don't we actually put some of this stuff into practice?
4: I know that I am compulsive to a fault if if I let myself sit and stare at a computer screen all day long, uh I could talk myself out of a good trade and into a bad trade uh many times a day, and so I recognize that about myself and what I have to do as a trader then is manage that and uh I think the challenge of a trader is to find out ways that they can deal with some of these things for me. Uh, this really means two things. And and the first is I avoid daily contact with the computer screen. Uh, I make it a habit to get uh, my orders in at the beginning of the day and get away from the market Uh, to avoid the the daily price changes and watching markets tick up and down and watching interday charts and all of those things because uh, that's not where my strength is. My strength is in looking at charts from a bigger picture and if I bog myself down uh, into the markets in their day, eventually my emotions are going to get the best of me and I'm going to make a bad decision. I, you know, and part of that is I limit uh, the hours of the day that I allow myself to enter orders. It's called discipline. It's called the discipline to do the things that, that, that I need to do uh, to be as successful as I can be as a trader. For me, that's entering orders between uh, 4 p.m. and 4:30 p.m. Mountain uh, uh, Standard Time. That is my hours for entering an order. I also do some entering of orders between about 5 and 6 o'clock a.m. in the morning. But those are times in which the markets aren't sitting and changing, and prices aren't going up and down. Those are lull periods, or times the markets are closed, and so. Uh, I attempt to enter all my orders when market hours are not taking place to avoid the emotional pull of reacting to uh, split-second things that I see in the computer screen.
1: Yeah, you know, there's no silver bullet to this thing, right? There's no way that anyone can make you a better trader, um, and can can wipe away all your flaws and amp up all your good qualities. But you know that last three minutes and 13 seconds is as good a starting point as you're going to find. You know, take that. Uh, write it down, make the bullet points, and stick it on your desk because if you can start from a foundation like that and throw in a lot of the things that, that Brent and Peter have said over this last uh, of this last segment it 's going to set you on the way to becoming a better trader. there 's no two ways about it
0: yeah and, and there 's another part actually in this um, in this series in this particular episode where Peter talks about how you know what you can actually never really overcome yourself i mean you can just sort of manage your emotions, and I think you know overcoming yourself is is the goal, but this is why you set in systematic uh, frameworks. You set, you set in things that you need to do. You schedule it so that you can manage your emotions. And yes, you know you have to forgive yourself sometimes because you are going to make those mistakes. But being able to identify them and to keep yourself on track with building good habits, I think that's the path to success, at least emotionally as a trader.
1: You know, We're not even close to being able to cover such a, a wide-ranging topic in, in one segment. Um, there are so many different ways you can come at this. And the first time we met Brett was in San Diego, and Raul was interviewing him, and I was actually sat in the next room um, and I noticed as the as the conversation went on, I found myself leaning closer and closer to the door, listening in uh, on the on the conversation they were having because I just recognized so many of the of the traps that i 've fallen into in the past uh, and and more by luck than judgment managed to claw myself out of, um, but it really is fascinating stuff
0: yeah Grant, it is fascinating stuff, and you know with Peter Brandt, I, I had the great opportunity to go to Arizona to visit with him and to shoot the A classical charting uh, series with him, you know, when he talks about stuff like diligence and being self-honest and being transparent. I mean, this guy lives it. And even off-camera, when we were talking about some of those topics, I mean, you can see all the work that's gone into it, and 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 how much self-reflection when he talks about himself and when he talks about trading. So, well,
1: um, and and the work that continues to go into it. You know, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, Peter's a sprightly seventy-six. I think is he? He's going to hate me if I'm wrong, but he's he's up there. And, I'll shoot under, And he still lives this every day, right? It's, it's incredible. His work ethic is, yeah. is extraordinary.
0: Yeah, Grant, it really is incredible. And before we move on to our final segment, and given that you mentioned Raul, I actually wanted to bring him in and Julian Brigden, who's calling in from somewhere in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado uh, to discuss a new project, a new collaboration that they're working on and just launched um, and want to bring them in to talk a little bit about it. So Raul, let me start with you. Uh, what is Macro Insiders and why are you and Julian launching it? Yeah, Macro Insiders is basically an institutional quality
2: macro research product, but for retail investors at the price for retail investors. We realized that there was a definitely an opportunity in the market to offer the kind of high-level research that both Julian and I have been writing for many years now, but open it up to a wider audience, people who don't normally get this kind of information because it's expensive
5: yeah no I I totally agree I mean I think we've discussed in the past how Raul, how we thought that you know the times are just so epoch making that it's really essential for all types of investors to understand what's going on in macro. And the retail investor is very poorly served. I mean, you can get hold of a plethora of macro research um, in inverted commas, but it's often exceedingly poor quality. It's not predictive. And what we want to try and do is A, help people understand the macro framework, because I think irrespective of even if you just Want to pick individual stocks. If if you don't understand what's going on in macro, uh, you're really going to miss out. And we want to bring it down to a level where people can truly understand it and also make it actionable.
2: Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, one of the big tenets of belief at Real Vision is democratization of finance. And this is essentially that. Um, One of the Real Vision subscribers had listened to one of Julian's presentations, and I think mine was around the same time, And they said, hey, listen, you guys should get together because you're very complimentary. You do kind of very similar things, but you do it in a different way. And I kind of remarked to Julius, what do you think about that? And we both thought, actually, it's not a bad idea. You know, we've both got huge egos, so it's quite hard to do. We had to have power (laughs) brokers and all that kind of
0: stuff to do it. But no, we we just thought, you know what, it's a great idea. You know, it's, it's an incredible story, uh, Ralph because <laughs> kind of, I wonder if we had any statistics on the number of businesses or, or collaborations that have come out of Twitter interactions. Uh, that might, might be kind of interesting. But final question, and Julian, this one's for you. Uh, what can the subscribers expect on a monthly basis?
4: Uh,
5: so it's going to kick off um, with a video. But what's going to make this unique and different is that we're both going to be on the video. But the idea is to create this forum where not only we can discuss existing ideas that we have, update you on how those are going, but also introduce new themes, but also occasionally battle it out as to how our views mesh. So you start off with a video and then for the following two weeks, you get a piece from us at MI2 and then a piece from Raoul and the GMI guys. And these are the in-focus piece. So the in-focus piece is really meant to be the actionable side of the product offering. These are things that could be very simple, but they also you know, could be a little bit more expanded versions where we're dipping into some of the thoughts that have gone around, say, the meeting of minds or we've discussed in the videos. But this is where, if you want, this is the sharp end of the product delivery. And then finally, at the end of the month, you'll get this piece called the meeting of minds. And this really... Um, once again, is something unique. This is going to be a chance for a retail investor to see the sort of research that we are offering directly to our institutional clients. So, we will pick a piece that we think is poignant and relevant to you and We will share it with you, perhaps with some additional explanation, perhaps with um, some different trade ideas, but it really is your opportunity to see over the wall and into that professional marketplace.
0: Yeah, Julian, absolutely. So for the listeners who are interested in finding out more, uh, just go to www.macroinsiders.com forward slash podcast. Now, if you go to that exact URL, you actually get access to the pre-July 28th offer of $2,497 for an annual subscription. But after July 28th, that price is going up to $2,997. So again, if you're interested in subscribing or just want to check it out, go to www.macroinsiders.com forward slash podcast. Well, Grant, let's move on to our final segment called Things I Got Wrong, where we speak with a market expert about a mistake they made. And then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom that they derived from that experience. So hopefully you guys don't make the same mistakes. Uh, Rick Rule is the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings, Inc. Uh, He is a legend in the natural resources investing space, uh, a mentor and a role model to many who've appeared on this program. So, Rick, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, certainly my pleasure. I really uh, enjoy the content that I get from Real Vision. Thanks so much. Now, before we get to the main vein, uh, if you allow me the pun, uh, of this segment, uh, for our listeners who don't know you and Uh, haven't, you know, seen you on Real Vision TV. Can you give us um, a summary of who you are, what you do, and the lens through which you look at markets?
6: I'm a natural resource investor, have been for 40 years. I run the U.S. business for Sprott Inc., a Canadian domiciled and listed merchant bank and money manager that's focused on natural resources. Uh, My own style Uh, I guess, is that I came out of the value investing school. I was mentored by Peter Kundal, a name well-known to value investors. And so I do bottoms-up securities analysis. Uh, My real professional background is as a credit analyst more than as a securities analyst. So although I'll do my best to answer big-picture questions, uh, I'm really at my best uh, reviewing uh, either the technical aspects, the engineering or geological aspects of investment or the balance sheet and the income statement on a company by company basis. So a fundamentally oriented investor focused on natural resources and precious metals.
0: So, Rick, uh, we just, just hear you talk about value investing, fundamentals, securities analysis and bottoms up analysis uh, or actually even, you know, natural resources. It sounds like, you know, for a lot of lost arts when you, can, when you uh, look at how the market is, is kind of structured today and, and which uh, strategies and, and styles are in favor. Uh, but, you know, let's get right into the, the meat of this. Segment. Can you tell us about a time where you made an investment mistake and the subsequent timeless uh, lesson you learned from that experience? Uh, We
6: don't have enough time to detail all of my investment mistakes, I'm afraid, but we'll deal with some of the most common ones. Um, I've I've talked to Grant Williams about this, but I'm an extremely linear thinker and an applied thinker. And the problem with that is that if I come to the conclusion that A A is true, B is true, C is true, D is true, and E is true, that the logical conclusion is let's say X. My problem is that I confuse two words in English. One is inevitable where I'm usually right and the other is eminent where I am often wrong. So I am uh, often early to investment themes by a substantial period of time and on a time value of money basis If you're four years early, it's easier or probably more accurate to say that you are wrong than you are early. Uh, I would describe that as my most common mistake. My first mistake, which might be a better way to answer the question, is that early in my career in the 1970s, I enjoyed really, truly spectacular success as a young man in natural resource markets. But I enjoyed the success because I had the wind in my sails. The gold price went from $35 an ounce to $850 an ounce. The copper price went from $0.30 cents to half. The oil price went from $3 to $30. And I somehow conflated that in my own mind to the fact that I was smart. Uh, in other words, I took personal credit for a bull market. I, conf- uh, I confused a bull market with brains. Uh, In the 1970s, I didn't understand that markets work and that the cure for high prices is high prices and the cure for low prices is low prices. The discovery process, uh, when the excesses of the 70s unwound in the 80s, was so profound for me that that's one mistake that I have never forgotten. In capital-intensive cyclical industries, I know intuitively intuitively now that you – Either are a contrarian, or you will become a victim.
0: That's a that's a great line. You know, um, Rick, I want to ask you because. Dealing in natural resources, I imagine that you deal with these sort of long, long running uh, super cycles and you've seen these cycles come and go. Um, do, are there any lessons that you think, you know, viewing and, and actually participating in those cycles that maybe our, our listeners who are more retail and are just introducing themselves or engaging with financial markets now can draw from that experience that you've had over you know, many uh, cycles and phases of cycles?
6: There are, in fact. The first is to remember the phrase that prompted your question. You are either a contrarian or you will become a victim. The truth is that these are capital-intensive and cyclical businesses. And what that means is that bear markets last longer than they should, but that bear markets create bull markets. Bull markets, conversely, are sharper than they ought to be, and they create bear markets. Let's look uh, at a couple of commodities by way of finding an example, uh, the uranium market is probably the classic cyclical market. We're in a we're in a situation right now where uranium is uh, in substantial oversupply as a consequence of the elimination or at least the near term elimination of Japanese demand from, uh, you know the. It, it, the tragic events with regards to their reactor industry so the industry on a global basis is producing uranium at a fully loaded cost not a cash cost but a fully loaded cost of about $60 a pound and they're selling the stuff for $22 a pound losing $38 a pound and because they're in a capital intensive business trying to make it up on volume absolutely catastrophic the industry is cannibalizing itself now the industry is overcapitalized As a consequence of a bull market in uranium that happened in the last decade. And once the excesses of this bear market have worked their way through the market and supply and demand rebalance again as a consequence of supply destruction, what will be interesting is that the uranium price recovery won't merely go to the incentive price for new production, but will go higher because the extended period of time when the industry was in liquidation, the industry won't have the ability to increase supplies in the near term to meet pricing signals. And this happens across industries over time. Interestingly, the time to invest in a commodity where ongoing demand for the commodity is assured because it's necessary to maintain our standard of life. I'm talking about energy resources, agricultural minerals, uh, industrial materials like zinc or copper, the time to invest in the industry for maximum gain is ironically when the industry is in liquidation and the price-earnings ratios are high because there are no earnings. The time to liquidate, and this is counterintuitive, is when operating margins are extraordinary because when operating margins are very high, that means commodity prices are very high and consumers are finding ways to conserve while the industry is trying to put new resources into production. So ironically, when the industry is in robust health and is it's most attractive, that's when you have to begin to sell. When the industry is in fact in liquidation. Uh, that's when you have to buy. It's really counterintuitive for someone who styles himself or herself as a value investor that you have to buy industries that are in liquidation and sell industries that are robust. But the truth is, that's what you have to do.
0: Yeah, Rick, that definitely sounds counterintuitive and sounds difficult to do. So, I guess my follow-up question for you there is that because you've seen so many boom and bust cycles, um, how do you how do you have the one how, how do you have the patience? Uh, To 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 go through these liquidation cycles and how do you risk manage kind of positioning into these liquidation cycles? two
6: good questions Uh, Warren Buffett says that in his declining years he's increasingly drawn to investments which require of him sloth and lethargy and At age 64, I'm attracted to that same circumstance It's odd now that my time on earth is becoming um, more precious that my patience grows Uh, I've now been in my life through, what, 11 or 12 five-year cycles, so they seem less daunting for me. In other words, I think time and experience, or age and experience, pardon me, uh, take care of the time preference argument. Um, The swings in valuation are so extreme in my business That the rent that's implied by being early uh, sometimes gets obviated by the simple size of the move. So time isn't so much a a challenge for me. Uh, Risk sizing is a very different circumstance because time isn't the only risk that I run. I run extraordinary political risks. Things like mines and oil fields are very tempting targets for governments because you can't move them. And once a large amount of money is invested in a fixed resource asset, it becomes an extremely attractive uh, target for a host government. So uh, sizing, in addition to commodity price cycles, also has to take into account political risk. And the part of the resource business which I am particularly competitive at Uh, which is pre-production, that is risk-adjusted net present value in development activities and exploration activities, uh, carries with it a very high risk. In fact, on an individual names basis, a probability of failure. That means that my investment analysis in exploration has to do with the fact that the Size of the prize, that is the reward for success, has to overcome in each individual issue the probability, not the possibility of failure. So position sizing uh, becomes very, very important to me.
0: That's fascinating. Well, fortunately, Rick, for us in this segment, time is an issue, and we have run out of it. Uh, But just going back to your linear thinking, uh, you know, you say you start at A, and if A is true, B, and then C, uh, D, and then E – I was really happy to hear that we are not effed at the end of that. So, uh, But for our listeners who want to follow you and read more of your work, how can they do that? The best place is to come to our website, www.sproutglobal.com.
6: There's about 200 hours of absolutely free instructional material at that website. If you are interested in my thoughts and, in fact, the thoughts of the entire Sprout organization on an ongoing basis – you can subscribe to Sprout's Thoughts. Uh, I absolutely guarantee that your subscribers will get their money's worth because it's absolutely free.
0: Excellent. Well, Rick, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And once again, I enjoy and thank you for your services. So Grant, I finally got Rick Rule on the program. I know you've been pestering me some time to, <laughs> to get him in. And you know, we spoke with Marin Katusa a couple of weeks back, and and it's not just Marin. I mean, we, so many people that we've come across have have brought up Rick as a mentor and someone that they've looked up yeah. to. And so it was just great to finally get him on the program and and to share uh, share his insights with the listeners.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I love when Rick talks about liquidation phases in the commodity uh, commodity space because you know, the beauty of that is if you miss one. There's another one along any minute now, so you will get your chance again to buy stuff in a liquidation phase. It, you know, it's it's such a tough space to invest in, um, and Rick does it as well or better than anybody I've met. So yeah, it's a treat to, treat to get him on the show, and uh, he's uh,
0: he's a fine fine man. He is now. I'm just just throwing an idea out there. Any way that we can maybe uh, we can get Rick and maybe even Lacey Hunt to be our our voices for like some future uh, <laughs> i know right wouldn't
1: that be great and yeah. wouldn't they, that would be the uh, the best thing for the listeners too getting those two with their yeah. dulcet tones replacing you and me
0: absolutely well unfortunately we're gonna have to wind things up for this week but before we conclude just a quick legal disclaimer anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors only. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and trade responsibly.
1: Indeed. And at home, you can join in with this bit now. Next week, we'll be back
0: with the usual long, short segment, as well as things I got wrong. And in our feature segment, Grant and Ra will revisit a Real Vision TV interview with Victor Hagani. Now, for those of you who don't know, Victor has a fascinating background, least of which involves him having a front row seat to one of the largest financial blowups over the past 20 years.
1: Yeah, Victor was at LTCM when that little episode hit the financial uh, news pages. And uh, what happened at that time set the precedent for future Fed bailouts of the banking system. So it's a really important time. And as, uh, as you rightly said, Aaron, yeah, Victor had a front row seat for the whole thing. Now, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show, uh, or indeed about anything else that we've natted on about over the weeks, then we'd love to hear it. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at
0: and if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and do leave us a review.
1: Or don't. You know,
0: I'm still skeptical about this thing. I we, just don't I know No, our reviews are going up. It. Grant, I, I, ch- I just checked yesterday and they're, they're going up.
1: But this is great. Like, I just don't know. What, what does it mean? What does it all mean, there?
0: What well, does it mean? We can get some more to help uh, explain it to Grant. <sighs> I don't know. Anyway, look, if you want to keep up to date with the
1: latest interviews, research publications, and of course, podcast episodes, then please follow us on Twitter at
0: Real Vision. You can find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision.
1: You can also follow me, should the mood take you, on Twitter at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us. We will see you back here next week.